Life is like a mountain railway with an engineer that's brave. We must make the run successful from the cradle to the grave. Watch for curves and hills and valleys. Never falter, never fail. Keep your hands upon the throttle and your eye upon the rail. Blessed Savior, Thou will guide us till we reach that blissful shore. Where the angels wait to join us in God's praise forevermore. As you roll across the trestle, spanning Jordan, swelling tide, you behold the Union Depot. Into which your train will glide. There you'll meet the superintendent, God the Father, God the Son, with a hearty, joyous greeting. Weary pilgrim, welcome home. Blessed Savior, Thou will guide us till we reach that blissful shore where the angels wait to join us in God's praise forevermore. Blessed Savior, Thou will guide us Till we reach that blissful shore Where the angels wait to join us In God's praise forevermore Where the angels wait to join us In God's praise boys and girls, second grade and below, you can go on back to Children's Church. Uh, Jordan Givens is going to be doing it today, filling in for Miss Nancy Goss. If you're second grade and below, you can meet Miss Jordan back at the back. She says, I want a sermon, Pastor. Give me a sermon. Amen. Thank you, Jordan, for filling in. Amen. If you have a Bible, open it up to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Before I forget, I want to make sure you uh, uh, see these beautiful decorations. Aren't they just marvelous? Yes. And uh, Miss Rhonda Bigby wanted me to make sure you knew 
She is not responsible for them. Deb Matting and Kathy Ferris, uh, and I think, I'm not sure if anybody else was up here. Uh, they were working hard uh, yesterday, I think uh, the day before perhaps, working hard uh, to make this place very uh, patriotic feeling in our beautiful red, white, and blues. Uh, Rhonda said she appreciated all the praise she was getting, but she said, I need to make sure everybody knows it wasn't me this time. And so, uh, thankfully, we've had some people volunteer to help her out. So she and uh, uh, Brigham weren't always doing it all. And so we certainly appreciate all of your labors. First Peter chapter 3. You know, God's Word is a great and glorious revelation to us. It inspires us in works. It inspires us in faith, in spiritual growth. It inspires us in hope as well. But sometimes we come across some scriptures, and we read them, and we're like, what? Right? And here's one that we're going to be looking at this morning in 1 Peter chapter 3, looking at verses 18 through 22, and specifically verses 19 through 21, they're a bit of a heartache for people who read the Bible, scholars, theologians, pastors, and just in everyday readers of God's Word, lovers of God's Word. This is considered some of the toughest scriptures, not only in the New Testament, but in the entire uh, Bible, Old and New Testament together. They're hard to understand, they're hard to apply. What exactly was Peter talking about? Who are the spirits in prison? When did Jesus go to preach to them? Why does Peter go from talking about Jesus to Noah? And what is an antitype? That's what my version of the Bible says there in verse 21. We're going to get to that in just a moment, talk about it a little bit. Let's read our scripture as a whole, though, verses 18 through 22 of chapter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine longsuffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, where angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to Him. Let's pause a moment for prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we pray for Your Holy Spirit's enlightenment in our life as we study this Word. We pray for Your Holy Spirit to Speak to us, convict us, Lord, to affect change in our lives from the inside out. That none of us would leave this place the same way we walked in, but Lord, we would be forever changed because of you working on us. Lord, carry us to completion, be, uh, to complete the good work you have begun in us, as only you can. It is in your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. So I want you to know that as confusing as some of this may have been, there is some really simple connections I want to draw out for us this morning. And though I know verses 19 to 21 are really strange, right? I do not want to spend a lengthy amount of time discussing these verses. I want to just talk about them very lightly. And it's not because I'm not prepared. I actually have about four or five pages of notes that I left out. I actually know this scripture real well. When I was in seminary, I actually did a term paper on this scripture. You're like, why did you choose that one? I like challenges. I'm kind of weird that way. But, but it, but, 
I don't want to talk about it a lot this morning because we'll get all caught up in that and, and I want to get to the application of, of the meat here. But that doesn't mean I'm not prepared. So if you're like, I really want to talk about this, uh, come and find me uh, sometime this week. Give me a phone call. I'm, I'm in the office like almost every day. We won't be here Monday. Dorothea told me it's Memorial Day. We're closing the office. I said, yes, ma'am. And so, uh, but, but just, you know, let's, let's, we'll have some coffee and we'll talk about the spirits in prison. But I want to touch on an explanation of these verses for the sake of solving a bit of your curiosity. Verses 19 through 21 are sandwiched, though, before we get there, between verses 18 and 22. And we so often overlook verses 18 and 22 because we're so like, wow, what is 19 through 21 talking about? So before we get to 19 through 21, I want to just talk about these verses, verses 18 and 22, just real quick. Verse 18 he is carrying on the thoughts that he had been discussing in the previous passage that we talked about last week, verse 17, which told us, It is better to suffer for doing good, if it is the will of God, than for doing bad. How can it be good to suffer for doing good? Well, think about Christ, and that's what Peter is pointing us towards, is the suffering Christ went through, and that's what he goes into in verse 18. But how can that be good? No greater love is this, then a, then a friend lay down his life, right? John 15, 13. I totally messed up that, that, uh, that uh, scripture. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. That's what that scripture says. And oh, how Jesus loved us. Amen? If greater love no one knows than this, that they lay down their life for their friends, Jesus laid down his life for you and for me. And not only did he lay down his life, but he subjected himself to suffering at the hands of evil men. And as Peter tells us in verse 18, the just for the unjust. So as Peter is writing these persecuted Christians and trying to give them hope, he wants to remind them, listen, if you're suffering for doing good, understand Jesus, who never did anything bad at all, who never deserved any sort of suffering, suffered for you and for me so that we could have access to God. And then in verse 22, once he has risen, after Jesus had risen from the grave, after that suffering was over, after his 40 days of finishing his ministry and teaching on this earth were over, he ascended up into heaven. Remember who we're talking, to, talking about. This is Peter writing this. He was one of the last ones to see Jesus on earth. He saw Jesus go up into the clouds, and so he is with great hope reminding them that, that hey, this, this Jesus now sits in authority over all things. We'll get to verse 22 again in just a moment. But what of these verses, 19 through 21? Would you believe that there are about a dozen different ways that people interpret these verses? A dozen. That's why I say we can't really get into it all today. And out of that dozen, there's about three or four that really are the major people, the major ones that people hold on to. And they, they kind of go back and forth between all these different ones. I want to give you just three real quick this morning. Three explanations of verse 19 specifically, where it says Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, if you already have a belief you hold on this, that's fine. I'm not trying to convince you, because I want to tell you, there are some major scholars that I respect, and they all disagree. Like John MacArthur, who I greatly, greatly respect as a preacher and a scholar, and Wayne Grudem, who wrote one of the greatest systematic theology books I've ever read, they completely disagree. They do not see eye to eye on this. Or W.A. Criswell, who I greatly respect, and Warren Wearsby, who I greatly respect, wonderful commentaries on God's Word, they don't even agree on this. 
what I, what I, what I, what I, what I, why I'm pointing that out to you is I want you to see we can disagree on how Scripture is explained or applied to our life, but we can still be brothers and sisters in Christ. So don't get up and leave if I tell you something that you don't agree with, all right? So three explanations, real quick, of verse 19 of he went and preached to the spirits in prison. The first one is this. When Jesus had been buried and before he was resurrected, he went into Hades during this time. And in Hades, it was believed, by the way, was believed to be a waiting place for the Old Testament saints. And he preached the gospel to them and gave them an opportunity to receive salvation through his name. All right, that's just one explanation. A second explanation is this. Jesus descended into hell, not Hades, between his death and resurrection and his victory. He proclaimed his victory over Satan to those spirits who were imprisoned, the evil spirits, specifically those spirits that are given mention to in the book of Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through about 3. And that's why, that by the way, was right before Noah built his ark, and that's why Peter mentions Noah. That's another explanation. Here's the third one. The time of Jesus' preaching is not between his burial and resurrection, but during the time of Noah, which is why Peter includes Noah in his illustration of the ark and baptism. What has happened is that Jesus is speaking in the Spirit through Noah to the people who were lost and were about to be devastated by God's judgment on the world. Now, in case you're wondering, which of these three that I hold on to, it's the third one. I, I, I just believe, to me it just makes the most sense, that Jesus was preaching through Noah to the people who were in danger of God's judgment. Why were they referred to spirits? In prison, you may be asking. Well, because in the present time in which Peter wrote this, they had already perished. And they were no longer people on the earth, but they were spirits in the prison. You're like, well, that, maybe you're thinking that doesn't quite make sense. Listen, he was talking about the present location of someone from a past event. Think of it like this. I married Kathleen, the teacher in Woodville. Now, when I married her, she was not a teacher in Woodville. She was a student in Belton. But I'm talking about the present location of a person from a past event. We were married, and she's a teacher in Woodville. So hopefully you can make that connection. Now, I could give you a lot of information of why I believe this. This, uh, this third one, scriptural, language, logic, all of that. But again, that's not my point this morning. But I do want to give you a couple of little tips, or a couple of little reasons. And they're, they're straight from Scripture. Why do I believe that Jesus went and preached through Noah at this time? Well, if you remember 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, Peter was talking about the prophets who had been proclaiming the coming Messiah. And he says in verse 11, The Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ. You see, the prophets of the Old Testament were able to prophesy the coming Messiah because the Spirit of Christ was in them, doing it in them, through them, for all those that would hear. Okay, so you're like, okay, does that include Noah? If you think about what Noah was, is he just a carpenter? Is he just some guy building a boat? Second Peter, which we're not in that book, but Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5, talking about God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness. All right, so those are, those are the only two I wanted to throw out to you. Again, I actually wrote a paper on this scripture in, in seminary at Southwestern. 
I'm not trying to impress you. I'm not trying to persuade your view. That's just why I believe that third one. And I could give you a whole lot of reasons. Here's the thing, though. There's holes in that one, too. There's holes in all of them. That's why there's like 12 different views on this one scripture. And, and some major theologians, scholars, preachers, pastors that I respect, they don't agree. And that's okay. We can disagree and still get along and still love one another. This is going to be one of those scriptures that when we get to heaven, we're going to say, praise the Lord, I made it. Now, Jesus, could you tell me about 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 through 21? Could you just explain that to us? You know, we're all going to be around going, ha, I was right. Or we may all be saying, well, none of us got it right. We were all completely wrong, and that's all right. Well, regardless of these three, or which of the 12, and you can go Google and find some really interesting ones about this scripture, we can look at the text and we can find a wonderful connection that Peter is making for us. You know, Jesus, he talks about him as suffering in verse 18. And through his suffering, leading up to the cross and his suffering on the cross, proclaim this truth. Humanity needs the salvation that only God offers. Noah who worked on the ark for 120 years, likewise, was proclaiming this truth. Humanity needs the salvation that only God offers. Jesus' salvation was offered because the judgment of God is one day coming, and those who are lost will perish. Noah was building an ark because the judgment of God was one day coming, and those who did not get on the ark would perish. With every pounding of the hammer on that ark, it was as if Noah was proclaiming this truth. Hear ye the word of the Lord, repent and be saved upon this ark, the vessel, the only vessel of God's salvation. And with every pounding of the hammer into the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, he was proclaiming, hear ye the word of the Lord, repent and be saved upon Jesus, the only vessel of salvation from God's coming judgment. I'm so glad that we display the cross here. And I'm so glad so many of you display crosses in your house. It absolutely warms my heart when I go into a home and I see crosses on the wall, crosses around the house. But if it is merely a display, a decoration that we find appealing to our eyes, then we are missing the point. Every time we look at the cross, it should remind us of the violent suffering that Jesus took for us and to be a reminder of our need to proclaim the world's need of salvation from the coming judgment. That's what it should do. Listen, this was a form of execution. If Jesus had been executed a few hundred years later, it would be a hangman's noose. If, it had been, if he had been executed a few thousand or a, a thousand years later, it might have been an electric, electric chair. Can you imagine singing instead of at the cross, at the electric chair? And so this should not be like, oh, that's so beautiful, mm, warms my heart. But it should be a great conviction of the suffering, of the pain, of the price. Christ paid for us, and therefore I need to go out into this world and proclaim the gospel. Verse 21 is the final confusing verse of this section. Peter says, baptism is an anti-type in my version. Now, there's a lot of different versions, the English versions out there you may be reading, and it may say something completely different. That's fine. What he is saying is that the story of Noah is a symbol. It reminds us. It's an illustration. It points to baptism. 
I want to read the English Standard Version of this scripture. And that water of the flood is a picture of baptism, which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience, it is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 21 is confusing because on first reading, it sounds like Peter is saying, baptism saves you. But here's what he is actually saying. The water of Noah is a picture of the water of baptism. So when I baptize someone, I say something that comes from Romans chapter 6, verse 4. I put them down in the water and I say, buried with him in baptism. We're talking about Jesus Christ, who paid the price by being put to death for our sins. Our sins were put on him, and he was put to death for our sins. But why we say buried with him in baptism is because at that point, we are recognizing, we are symbolizing our recognition that we are spiritually dead because of our sins, and we need to put that to death. It was God's judgment of our sins that put him to death. It is our sin that actually has already put us to death. Verse 18, remember, says, the just for the unjust. Baptism symbolizes that we recognizes, recognize that we were spiritually dead. But when I baptize, I don't leave them under the water. Not for long, anyway. But I raise them up, and I say something like this. You remember, this is also from Scripture. Raised to walk in newness of life, okay? And what we are saying, baptism is a picture. It is a symbol that we understand that we have surrendered to Jesus as Savior and Lord in the same way that he was raised to new life. We have been raised to new life. The water... Baptism symbolizes our death. The water of Noah was death upon all those who would not get on the ark. And from that water that covered the, uh, covered the earth, the ark, the vessel of salvation, of God's salvation, raised up eight people who said, I believe in what God has given me as a salvation. And just like baptism, when we raise up, we say, I have gotten on the vessel of Jesus Christ, the only way of God's salvation from his judgment, the death, that water is a picture of. Okay? So here's the, here's the question. Have you responded to that call? Have you responded to that call of Jesus? The, the water of baptism does not save us. Peter says it's, 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 it's not... It's not about removing dirt from the body. I think he's being kind of funny there, right? When he says it's not the removal of dirt from the body. I wonder if perhaps he had some people come to church to be baptized, but really it's just because they hadn't had a bath in a while. You know, sometimes in the church we deal with people who just want to get wet because it makes them feel good. It gives them a little bit of a warm fuzzy. I've not been to church in a while, so maybe I'll get baptized. But listen, baptism is a decision that we make after we have confessed Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have surrendered to his call of salvation, and we've given our life over to him. It is about a conscious, good conscious decision for Jesus Christ, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we've heard that call. We've heard that cry, that proclamation. Hear ye the word of the Lord, repent 
and be saved upon the only vessel of God's salvation, Jesus Christ. Have you responded to that call? Have you responded to that call of salvation? And just as Peter points out in verse 20, the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. Why didn't God just speak the ark into existence, we might ask? Because he wanted to give them 120 more years to repent and be saved. We may ask the same kind of question. Why doesn't God just zap all of the evil in this world gone? Why doesn't he come right now and return and set up his, his heavenly kingdom on earth? The divine long-suffering is waiting for all who might be saved to give the lost a last chance to respond. Have you responded to the gospel? Have you responded to the pain and suffering Christ paid for your salvation? I don't know how much longer he's going to wait. The moment we are born, we're headed to the grave. We're not promised. Some people say we're not promised another day. We're not promised another moment. So now what? I want to give you three points of application from the scripture to our lives this morning, real quick. Number one, God is always, 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 always about proclaiming man's need of salvation. Always. I mean, that's the gospel in a nutshell. Man was lost because of his sin and could do nothing about it. And so before the foundations of the world, God set a motion where he would pay the sacrifice for man's sinfulness. Regardless of how we explain verses 19 through 21 and believe what is being said, we need to see the point of the scripture is about the proclamation of man's need for salvation and God being the only supply for that salvation. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the only way of salvation. Do you know the one thing Jesus repeated over and over to his disciples once he rose from the grave? Essentially it was be my witnesses. Proclaim what you have heard. Proclaim what you have seen. I mean all of the gospels essentially ends with this command. Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Mark 16, 15, go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Luke 24, 48, and you are to be witnesses of these things. John 21, 17, Jesus commands Peter, feed my sheep. And this wasn't even the gospel. Acts 1, 8, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the utter ends of the world. And nothing is to stop this. Not our suffering, but let's just be real. I mean, we might suffer from the pains of humanity, we might suffer at the hands of other people. But when we think about what the Christians were going through that Peter is writing to, we have no idea what suffering is. As Jim was praying and as we have celebrated this day, the, those that have laid down their lives for our freedoms, and we have that freedom to gather here in worship. Man, I was reading a story this week about a pastor who has to walk 10 miles just to get to the church that he pastors, and he has to do it in secret reading about another man this week that his wife, he had led his wife out of a pagan religion to be saved. His wife and his kids, and this week his wife decided she wanted to go back to the pagan religion and left him and took the kids. That's suffering for your faith. And I'm not trying to put us down. I'm not trying to say, you haven't really suffered. That's not what I'm saying. Listen, I know we have suffered, but we have not suffered for our faith. I don't believe. Not yet. I mean, I've been put down verbally for sharing the gospel, but I've never been put down to 
for sharing the gospel. This book is meant to be a light of hope for the persecuted believers in Jesus Christ. And Peter's point of hope in this passage is that even in our suffering, remember Christ suffered too, and he didn't deserve it. And you don't deserve it either. And in that suffering, though, salvation is proclaimed. So don't let anything stop our call to proclaim the gospel. Let me make this clear. If you are truly a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, your calling, every single one of us have the same calling, proclaim the gospel. Sometimes we, uh, sometimes we interpret that word preach, caruso, okay? But it doesn't mean you need to go to pul- pulpits or us and buy you a pulpit and start traveling around and preaching the gospel. It means just calling forth, telling forth, letting people know about the good news of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of ways that we can proclaim the gospel in our everyday lives, how we live through our baptism. Let me ask you, have you been baptized? Baptism is the first step of obedience once we have been saved. Baptism is not a part of salvation. Baptism does not save you. It doesn't seal your salvation. But it is the first step of obedience to God after we have been saved. And so if you have never been baptized after you proclaim Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you're living in disobedience to Him. So often we talk about disobedience being these big sins, but listen, not being baptized is one that we can live in disobedience about. Not proclaiming the gospel is another one we can live in disobedience about. Man, God is always, always proclaiming. He's always, always about proclaiming this message of salvation and man's need for salvation. I spent way too much time on that first point. Here's the second one. Success is not in numbers. I don't know if you caught that or not. This is probably one of my favorite verses. I know I say that a lot, Jim. I know y'all laugh at me every time I say, this is one of my favorite verses. But I like I liked a lot what verse 20 says. Uh, talking about Noah, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. You know, Success in our society is often confirmed and talked about through numbers. How much money do you have? How many people do you have attending? And so on and so on. And in fact, we get a little discouraged around here regarding numbers. Sunday night attendance is pretty low. Not just here, but most churches have really low attendance on Sunday night. It gets kind of discouraging. Sunday, uh, Wednesday night, where we have a dedicated time of church prayer, prayer, praying for the needs of the church, praying for lost people, Our attendance is really low. That that can be a little bit discouraging. But then I think about this scripture, verse 20. Puts it into perspective. For 120 years, 120 years. None of you are 120, right? So you don't even know what that's like. 120 years Noah worked on the ark. and He was a preacher of righteousness. And yet only eight people got saved. Maybe he was a bad preacher. Maybe he didn't tell current illustrations from current events that helped, uh, 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 helped people have a light sense of humor. But maybe, maybe he didn't tell warm and fuzzy stories that gave people a, an emotional up and down during his message. Maybe he didn't have the proper theological, I don't know. But only eight people got saved. And yet in God's eyes it was successful. Why? Because the message was proclaimed and someone was obedient. And someone responded. You know, we used to have a saying, and some people have fallen away from it, I I think. I don't know why, but it used to be this. If we do all of this and only one person gets saved, is it worth it? Amen. 
I say we go back to that mindset. Because I think we've gotten so discouraged by numbers and only one person getting saved, we've given up on the calling of proclaiming the gospel. Listen, our calling is to proclaim and leave the success of numbers up to God. Just be obedient. Number three, Jesus' victory is our victory. Lest we forget verse 22. I told you we'd come back to that. Verse 22 is our reason. It's, it's our motivation. Jesus has gone into heaven. Remember Peter, dear Peter, he's, he's writing this. He was one of the last ones to see Jesus rise into the clouds, and he knows that Jesus is now at the right hand of God, interceding for us day and night. And all powers and all angels and all authority are under him. In other words, all glory and all honor and all power belong to him. It reminds me of what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. And God the Father uh, glorified him to the highest spot and gave him the name above all names, that every knee would bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus is Lord. Peter, writing to the Christians who are being persecuted, and he wants them to hold strong and not let their suffering keep them from sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Because in the end, the victory is ours. Because Christ has given it to us. And this is a great reason for hope. Remember last week when we looked at verse 15? Be prepared to give a reason, a defense to your hope. That's your reason for hope. I used to serve under a pastor that would end a lot of his sermons this way. I've read the end of the book, and we win. Y'all ever heard a pastor say that? He would end a lot of them. And I loved that. I mean, it would, he was right. I've read the end of the book, and we win. But you know what? I've read the beginning, and I've read the middle, and it says the same thing. The victory is ours if Jesus is ours. If Jesus is our Lord and Savior, then our victory is completely summed up in him. Remember the connection to our baptism, the symbolism of it all. When we raise the believer out of the water, we say we are raised to walk in newness of life. That new life is in and because of Jesus Christ. We now share life with Jesus Christ, and in that sharing of life, we also share in his victory over death and over our greatest enemy, the devil and his sin. We have victory in full. And not only that, but we will even enjoy authority over powers and authorities and the angels. That's what scripture tells us. It's in the Bible. Look it up. But until we proclaim, until then we proclaim and we find in that our great hope. And when suffering comes along, we don't see it as a deterrent to our calling to proclaim, but instead we see it as a reason for hope. Am I suffering for my faith? I'm just like Jesus. Now that seems psychotic, right? We don't want to go around. <laughs> I love suffering in the name of the Lord. But like I said last week, it's an inner sense of hope that gives us a peace that passes all understanding. Do you have that hope? Do you have that inner sense of peace that passes all understanding that can only come through seeing suffering as a likeness of being in the likeness of Jesus Christ. We're going to have a time of invitation this morning, a time for you to respond. And I want to invite you to, uh, to just hear what the Lord may be saying to you during this time of invitation. Maybe, maybe he's calling you to finally follow him 
in baptism, believer's baptism. Maybe he's calling you to be saved this morning, to put everything that you've been holding on away from you and say, I surrender to you, Jesus, Lord and Savior of my life. Maybe there's something, some heartache that you're dealing with. You just need to spend some time in prayer. We want to encourage you to do any and all of that. I'll be down here. Uh, Brother Kenneth will be down here. Uh, ladies, uh, if you need someone to talk to, Miss Tina's down here as well, and so is Susan Attaway. We want to encourage you to respond as God is leading you during this time of invitation. Would you bow your, hair, your heads in prayer with me? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to hear from your word. Lord, I pray, I pray, Lord, that the argument has been made, that you are the only way of salvation, and therefore you are the only way of hope for our lives. Father, I pray that we would respond obediently during this time of response, of, of invitation. Lord, that you would hear our cries. Lord, we would humble ourselves before you. Thank you, Lord, for great scriptures that while they may seem confusing, we can still get some really great application in, for our lives. And Lord, maybe we have not been obedient to our call to proclaim the gospel. I pray that maybe this morning we would just drive a stake into the ground and say, from this moment forward, I'm going to do everything I can. Even if it may, means I look like a fool to people, I'm going to do everything I can to proclaim the truth that salvation is only through Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for hearing me. It's your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.